I wasn't quick enough. Uh, If you could come back standing in honor of reading God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 24. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants, you will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for, through the twin, for though the twins were not born yet, <clears throat> and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have the right, does the, not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience? vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Thanks, Dylan. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are told that uh, we are, through your word, your creation. And it's through your creation it has testified, whether it be the sunset or the power of a mountain, that there is a God. And Lord, among all creatures, you have been most gracious to humanity, who has rebelled against you willfully, 
And yet in that rebellion, you have remained gracious. It is an interesting thing that when you have spoken, some have considered its words and some refused to hear it. I fear for the day of Amos when he proclaimed that there would be a famine in the land, not a famine of food, but a famine of hearing God's word, responding to it. And I know that today that day has not been found for even these words were read to us this morning about how you are sovereignly working out your plan. So Lord, as we consider them this morning, I know that in my own heart I have thought that I have brought me to my own position, my own strength, my own wisdom, my own hands have led to the result of what I have come to enjoy. Yet in these words, I've come to realize there is a God who is sovereign behind all things. And so, Lord, as we contemplate them, as difficult as some might think they are to understand, Lord, I pray that we'd find our place. We are the creature. You are our creator. And, Lord, in that light, may we respond accordingly as we come to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all people... God graciously provided to the church a unique window to understand the wrath of God. In that, the wrath of God is the servant of God's mercy. There are times when we walk through the scriptures, if you are reading regularly from God's word, you will find that there are teachings which come across rather harsh. In fact, They're quite blunt. Jesus in his own ministry, as he taught some hard teachings, found at times his own followers asking the question, who can listen to it? It's too hard. It's too pointed. John chapter 6, verse 65, he confronts his audience and he says, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, this harsh teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus experienced this rejection as a result of hard teaching. Timothy was warned about this from Paul. Paul in 2 Timothy reminded Timothy in chapter 4 verse 3, there will be a time, for the time will come when they people will not endure sound doctrine. They're going to want their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. In other words, create a, a God in which they can understand, in which they can enjoy, at the cost of forsaking sound doctrine. John chapter 6, 2 Timothy is not the only place where we find hard teachings. Rather, they're often harsh Now, when I say harsh, what I don't mean is cruel. God's revelation isn't cruel, it's a gift. Yet at times, it confronts the audience so harshly, it divides. As we've said already, doctrine divides and unifies. And as a result, we can recognize throughout all of Scripture, its unique Uh, contributions in this sense where the Spirit of God leads His people to understand a principle of whom God is. And so, 
we read from certain times from God's word things that comfort us. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I uphold you with my righteous right hand. And how our hearts are prone to love these passages in times of trouble. They also invite us at times, the scripture, God's word. Jesus, as he spoke in Matthew eleven twenty eight, it resounds within our spirit. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So at times God's word invites us, and at times it comforts us, but at other times it encourages us when we need it. Paul, anticipating this in Thessalonica, wrote to the church by the Spirit of God. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, brethren, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. No doubt, certain scriptures get more attention than others. I don't have to argue for this, for we're more than aware what verses get plastered on shirts, or at the golf tournament, or behind the goalposts at a football game. And yet at the same time, we know Jesus himself, Apostle Paul, and as we find ourselves today, the scriptures speak bluntly, straightforward, harsh. They're unapologetic. They're frank. They don't tickle the ear. In fact, they cause even those of the beloved to go, what in the world? Many, have, as I've spoken with some of you, have said that the chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11 have been skipped in their historical journeys with Christ and from the pastoral position or even from a college or a theology discussion. At times I wonder the harsh passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11 are tests for pastors. Will they preach it? I also think that they're tests for people who uh, sit under a pastor congregationally. Will we receive these words? These words, I think, are harsh. I think they're blunt. I think that they open a window. I mean, harsh is not the right word. They're frank. And like when you read Romans 9.13, if you were a guest and you had no idea who God was and you heard before two children were ever born, had done anything right or wrong, that God in his sovereignty said, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That's the God which you don't want to worship. It's blunt. It's straightforward. Or maybe 9.18 you find out to realize it's God who has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. As we will see in 9.22, what if God, all willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath before prepared for destruction? That God somehow would exercise his sovereignty to accomplish these things. The impact of hard teaching causes many, and as we know throughout church history, we know within the world causes for people to step back and kind of find their place. Jesus saw this and he taught harshly and bluntly and directly that it caused many to desert him. 
And as a result of this, Jesus turned to the disciples in John chapter 6, verse 67 and 69. You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sometimes when we come to passages that we can't comprehend and we're trying to grapple with how this works, there's a gut reaction. Do we reject it or do we receive it and comprehend what Paul is trying excuse me, to communicate? I hope that you be found with me that these are gifts to the church. And I've tried to stress this throughout this process. If there's ever a passage in which the sovereignty of God is pressed further than ever before, it's the one we're looking at today. And up to this point, Paul has labored with the purpose to provide this letter to establish those in Rome, the Christians. And you remember with me, he says this in Romans 1, verse 11, that he wrote these things, for I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established or strengthened. Hard teachings, hard theology, stated bluntly with its aim and purpose to strengthen you in Christ. And so as he began, he began to go through the beginning of the letter of Romans to, to remind us that when the gospel is preached, the wrath of God is revealed. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The moment the gospel is preached and we see the cross, the atonement for our sins being put on display before our eyes, we come to realize unless there is a means of salvation, that wrath is due us. And God in His greatness, God in His goodness, as Romans 2.2, 2, Paul states, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Sinful, willful, disobedience, rebellion against God. It is good of God, it is right of God to put out, pour out His judgment upon. But it didn't matter if it were a Jew or a Gentile. Paul has already argued, all are under sin. That judgment is upon all. For all have sinned, as Romans 3.23, as we remember as we walk back through the letter of Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in His mercy, for while we were still helpless, God in His mercy sent His Son, Jesus Christ. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And it's God, not man, but by the will of God, God demonstrated, as he states in Romans 8, 5, 8, and 9, demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is the power of God being put on display as Paul is trying to strengthen the church. You were helpless, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. God recognized your helplessness and in His mercy, He demonstrated His love towards you while you were yet sinners. This is the power of God put on display for you to receive and to enjoy by faith. And on the basis of this faith and believing in Christ's atoning work, we come to this realization in Romans 8.1. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. We find ourselves in a unique position that we once did not have. For while we were slaves of the flesh, this led to death, separation from God. But as Romans 8 has testified, those who are in Christ have been given the gift of the Spirit. And this gift of the Spirit is this. The Spirit Himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Man, He's done a lot of work. Trying to strengthen and edify and get us to understand who we are in Christ. And something happens in Romans 8. Those who read these things come to realize who God is and how this salvation took place. And what she writes in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. The reader, at this point, has come to realize the means by which they are saved. It's important because the Jewish audience thought that they might be saved because of their work, their efforts, their obedience to the law, or by simply just being a Jew. Perceive the Gentiles far away from God. There was no hope for them to work their way with God. But it's here in Romans 8, 28 through 30, they recognize, we recognize the means by which one is saved by God. Salvation of God does not belong to man, but it belongs to God who calls. Paul has been blunt. The means by which we are saved, I will say it and read it again. God causes all things to work together. And we're introduced at this point to the sovereignty of God being put on display even unto salvation. He works all things together. And notice what he stresses to those. It's specific. It's not to those who are not called. It's to those who are called. And so if we were to read it again, how is one saved? It is determined on God who has called all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And he emphasizes it again. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. He emphasizes it over and over again. He draws us back to John chapter 6. In which we're reminded this hard teaching of Christ caused many to desert Him. Paul brings it into the church for the purpose and reason to establish us. To strengthen us. To understand how in the world, excuse me, are we saved? Which he stresses by the grace of God. In Romans 9. Thank you for that introduction. Felt like I didn't do the introduction to Romans 9 again that we might not understand this, this tension which Paul is trying to, to address. 
Paul comes to the conclusion at the end of Romans 8, this dilemma, if God is indeed sovereign, even in regards to His salvation, the implication for this reality impacts His own people. For not all Israel have been called. Which is the reason why so many Israelites of His day, and yet still to this day, have not responded to the Gospel. And the result of this hard teaching, you can see His internal response. Romans 9, 1-2. I'm telling the truth. Amazing that the Apostle Paul has to stretch this reality. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies within me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I would read on, for I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. There is a result. There are many Israelites who have trusted in something else for their salvation. And as we looked last week, some have trusted in God's historical work in the nation of Israel as means for why God might extend salvation to them presently. They trusted in their natural descent. I'm the son of Abraham, God's one whom he favored among all. And by being his descendant, I have an automatic bid towards his mercy. And then he says something in verse 11 that might cause many to wonder. Romans 9 verse 11. Though the twins, talking and referring to Jacob and Esau, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. The sovereignty of God has been put on display so far as a result of Romans 8's proclamation. Salvation is a result not of your natural descent, not your religious advantage, or even what you've done. God's salvation is extended even upon twins according to His call. This is an important question. Who saves? This is what Paul is asking. And he's pressed the reader to the point to realize well, it's not by merit, it's by not by natural descent, it's not by religious advantage that one gets into a right relationship with God. It is merely by Him who calls. And it's in the result of this blunt statement that we find even a blunter statement or stricter statement in verse 12, in which He said to her, the older will serve the younger. This is God, just as He says in verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The sovereignty of God as results to salvation is put on full display. How are you saved? By the mercy of God who calls. And with that all before us and realize, Paul then comes to this conclusion. And he has to respond to this conflict even within us. Is this make God unfair? If he gets to choose whom gets to be saved, does this make God fair? What are we to think what shall we say then? Verse 14, you get this, this first point in which he stresses. What are we to think? What shall we say then? Before I get into it, I know we've been laboring. As we've gone through the doctrine of predestination, it, it tends to build on itself. But Paul seems to think that we can handle it. 
And as a result of that, I want to come to the point where we come to realize why this is a gift. Because I think at times we come to underestimate the grace that's been given to us. Yes, as we go through this, there's going to be objections in the mind. What about human responsibility? Would you just push that off for a bit? Let Paul do his work as he presses the sovereignty of God so that we might be strengthened in the power of the salvation which has been extended to us in Christ according to his call. And if man is only saved by the call of God, what shall we say then? Verse 14. No, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. He goes to argue that the means by which salvation occurs is a gift. And God has historically reserved his right to give grace where he ever desires to give it. And so we know this about God as he goes in verse 15. For he says to Moses, God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's grace, as we have already come to realize, is sovereignly applied wherever he freely desires. Meaning that God is, is, is sovereignly capable to recognize whom he wants to save. Let me rephrase it this way. We are not saved. God does not respond to giving salvation based upon our determined moral conduct or opinion. Rather, God has free will, just as you have free will. But by the way, God's free will existed before your free will. And God's free will is then superior to your free will. So therefore, God gets the right to extend his mercy wherever he desires it. Not on the basis by which you get to use your free will. He is independently choosing based on his own sovereignty whom he delights in placing his grace. Paul's point here is in verse 16. So then he emphasizes and he doubles down. He's going to triple down. He's going to quadruple down as we're going to see here in a moment. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy Church in Rome, church in in Tri-Cities, churches throughout the world. How are you saved? How did the gospel get to where it has landed? By your own effort? No. But by the grace of God who is allowed to raise up men and women to go forth throughout the world proclaiming his gospel. How do they get the means and the power and the passion to do such things? By the mercy of God. This will change the way that you parent. This will change the way that you go to work and proclaim the gospel. This is is gifts of grace so that we might be established in the hope within us. And then we read, then Paul says, well, grace has been, all the examples he's used thus far are positive. Then he throws before us Pharaoh. And it's at this point many of us have struggled. How is God fair in doing that? Consider Pharaoh, Paul says. For the scriptures say in verse 17, The scripture says to Pharaoh, for the very purpose, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18. So then he has mercy upon whom he he desires and he hardens whom he desires. We might fall into a trap trap here and we can be guilty of making an assumption here. 
Some might have argued that God hardens Pharaoh's heart because in his sovereignty, he looks down the timeline of history and he can see that Pharaoh was going to rebel against God. And in that free will decision, Pharaoh, God further hardens his heart. That is not a part of Paul's logic. To solidify this again so that we might understand, God does not choose upon merit. He chooses to be one who extends his mercy by grace. He also extends his, mer- his wrath by which he freely decides. Which in Romans 9.11 solidifies this purpose. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. So, so God doesn't choose to pour out his mercy based on the merits of an individual. And in the same way we come to realize with wrath, that same theology, if flipped, is consistent, according to Paul. Verse 11, let me read it again. For that though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Man, Pharaoh was established and raised up to the most powerful individual and king of the world, not by his strength, but by whose? What does Paul say? Romans 9, verse 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. Pharaoh, you thought you got into power by your own strength. But I have been all alongside of you, raising you up from a child to an adult to rule over your kingdom. For what purpose? Pharaoh all along, of course, no doubt, thought it was by his purpose, by his effort, by his will, by his merits, became the most powerful king of the world. No, Paul reminds us he was raised up by God with this purpose, to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Why? Because there is a purpose behind the purpose. Which is God. Man runs in their own purposes. But it does not deny the purposes of God. Paul is. He's stressing the sovereignty of God. No he's enforcing it. He's placing man back in his place. God was sovereign before you existed. And he created you with a purpose. What's unsettling with this is Pharaoh was established by God to be the vessel by which he could run his power through and shaming him and bringing him down to destruct excuse me down to destruction so that the power of God might be put on display. We come to realize there is one who is more sovereign than we might think. And in this, he solidifies, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Okay, let's stop. We are part of a culture, I think, and which assumes that God is at a distance. He's not interacting as much as we think he might be. But Paul pulls this, this viewpoint of God and destroys it. No. He's going to use this same logic here in a few chapters to encourage the Christian churches to pray for their Roman leaders. Nero, who's about to place out destruction throughout all those who cling to Christ. And it's as a result of this understanding, he's going to call them to obedience. Who put him there? 
Who put Pharaoh in charge? And so we come to understand that there is a God who is sovereign behind all things. Individually. Raising up men and women according to where he desires it. And in that process and purpose, he desires to apply where he desires his mercy and whom whom he wants to harden. But this has always been the way it is. That's a negative presentation that Paul might use, but I could give you others. David, a man after God's own heart. He was brought from the shepherd fields, one who ran for his life for eight years from Saul, whom God himself put an evil or encourage an evil trouble be placed upon Saul, and for eight years pursues this righteous man, David, flees, loses all his friends and all his relationship, yet you see a man, David, who clings to God. And yet after the death of Saul, in Second Samuel, God allows him to come to his position as king over all Israel. But it's interesting, David's response as a result, he comes to this realization, he didn't arrive to this position as king, by his own merit. In 2 Samuel verse 5, chapter 5, we see this in verse 12. After being king over all Israel, David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. There's a God behind this who is sovereignly interacting and accomplishing his purposes. Even your salvation. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. Daniel reminds the king Nebuchadnezzar, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He, God. God removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Why are we dumb? Why do we gain wisdom? Why do we rise up in power? Why are some crushed? There's one who's sovereign. He presses in Romans this idea of God so that we might rightly know who we are. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Old Testament for the Jewish audience, often this idea of God's sovereignty is put on display before the reader concerning kings. Why? Kings are the ones with power. It's kings who think that they come to their position of power by their power, by their strength. And in using them as the object, as the teaching tool, all humanity recognizes there is God who is sovereignly controlling all things. Why would this establish you? Why would this strengthen you? Why would this theology encourage us? Well, if it was leaning on me, this whole thing would fail. I would say, if you trust in a God who's not sovereign, that idea leads you towards depression. It leads you to fear and anxiety because this church is about to get slaughtered. Many of them are going to die for their faith in Christ. What will they cling to? God, are you in control? Are you still working out your purposes? When you experience suffering, what do you need? You need a sovereign God. That's what you need. You don't want a God who's trying to figure it out along the way. 
You need a God who is in control. And this is what Paul is presenting before the reader. This is why we are strengthened in that even the Pharaohs, God is working out his purposes behind. And so that whatever you might occur, whatever situation you might face, we recognize this reality. God is sovereign. And if so, God has been gracious to you. It has been his decision to be merciful to you. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. Natural reader, even myself, would then conclude this. That's not fair. Verse 19. You'll say to me, why does he still find fault? If God is sovereignly behind those who get mercy and those who are hardened. How then can God hold accountable those who are purposely been hardened? For who resists His will? I think it's a natural question. I want you to notice though, however, however, how Paul responds to this question. That's not fair, God. That if salvation is only extended to those whom you have mercy, and if mercy is not extended to those, then the hardening of their heart, how do you get the right to hold them accountable for their hardening? He doesn't rebuke his theology. He rebukes the one who asks such a demeaning question. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you? It's a rebuke. Who are you, O man? He is criticizing man's perspective of God. Man, for some reason, in light of this reality and in light of this revelation, might be prone to judge the judgments of God as evil. And it's this very philosophy in which Paul says, Who are you? Do you not remember who you are? You're a man, and God is who he is, sovereign God. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Do you not know this? I wonder if there could have been a better phrase. God could have made you a fly. Could have made you a tree. But he was gracious to you to bestow his image upon you. And his good decision. And how is it that you now turn to him in this context and test his goodness? If he decides to give mercy where he delights and harden where he hardens, is that not his judgment? And we do know God is good, and if he was good, and indeed as he is good, where he extends grace and where he does not, would that not be good? He doesn't rebuke the theology, he rebukes the one who will not accept it. How, who are you to say that God is not fair? But then he continues. And this is the passage which much be, many people have had a hard time understanding and unwilling to receive. For in it we recognize God's wrath is the servant of God's mercy. He's doing something. Verse 21. Oh, let me start at verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded, which is us, will not say to the molder, Why did you make me this way? Will it? Does a fly say back to its creator, why did you make me fly and live for a day? No, he lives for a day and he flies. But who are you, O man, 
Or does the potter have the right, does he not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, now this is, he's not backing up, he's confronting. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, purposely endured with much patience. I I put purposely, that's Jacob's paraphrase. But he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God purposely, before the creation of the world, determined vessels by which he would pour his wrath on? What if he did that? What are you going to do about it? To which court room on earth could you usher God in and say, I have something wrong with my creator and which would hear your case and side with you when that sovereign God with the same breath could say, cease from existence. What's Paul doing? He's showing the church the sovereignty of God. Why might that establish you? Why might that strengthen you? Because he who began a good work upon the vessels of mercy who have received it will see it to completion. It gives hope. It strengthens. But why does he do this? Verse 23. Why is it that God determines to whom his wrath will be poured upon and to whom his mercy will go? Verse 23. He did so Paul actually answers our question. He rebukes us for that kind of thinking. But then he's gracious. God did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Nobody reads the situation with Pharaoh. And as they watch Pharaoh and his cruelty, as he threw babies upon in the Nile just because they were Jewish. Nobody reads the situation what plague after plague that God set upon Egypt and says, that was unjust of God. No. Everybody who witnesses the, the situation with Pharaoh and God recognizes, praise God, God is awesome. That even the greatest king in the world is being forced to submission by God Himself. And grace is being extended to a weak, limited nation called Israel. And it's the nation of Israel who becomes the vessels of mercy who are drawn out of Egypt. And as a result of God's mercy being placed upon this group of people, the wrath of God was being poured upon Pharaoh and those who sided with him. And the vessels of mercy who watched it said, Our God is powerful. And God raised Pharaoh up for what purpose? He raised up Pharaoh so that the vessels of his mercy might see his power put on display. And it's the nation of Israel that came to this conclusion as Paul, as Moses taught them. Do not think that because of your works or your inherited, uh, uh, your own works and your own advantage, that you came to acquire this grace by your own efforts. Now, God chose you to and be merciful to you. And so that you might know the mercy extended to you 
that power was placed upon Pharaoh. And this is his logic in verse 22 and 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath before, prepared beforehand for destruction? Patience of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The vessels of mercy, in other words, will come to realize the depths of God's grace in light of his wrath placed on others. God wants to be known for his mercy. But in order for humanity, the vessels of his mercy, to know the the joys of his mercy, God must put in the background his wrath. How did Israel know the strength of the Lord? Through the one whom God raised up, Pharaoh, in which he demonstrated his power. And so we respond, that's not fair. But God says, no, I have a purpose. And my purpose is this, according to Paul, is that so that you might know the mercy of God extended to you. We've only got a hint of it. And in that hint, we recognize our wrath was poured out upon Christ. But there is a day, a coming, in which the wrath of God will be poured out on his vessels of wrath. And in that moment, the vessels of his mercy will respond and realize the incredible grace given to us. For we know deeply, we know rightly, that all things, the judgment of God poured upon a sinner, that when God does that, it's done rightly. And we should have endured that. And when that occurs, the grace of His mercy is pushed, it's pushed, before our eyes, and we recognize the mercy of God extended towards us. The wrath of God is the servant of God, in which it reveals His mercy. And I want to conclude with this. Pharaoh is just one example. He's a, he's a type whom God raised up to demonstrate His power. Pharaoh was king over one nation. But we know, as Scriptures has revealed, there is one even more powerful than him. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you want a sovereign God who is not sovereign over Satan? Who established him? Who brought him to his power and position? Was it Satan? Or God himself? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Yet at the right moment Christ appeared, showed his sovereign power over Satan. Satan purposely asked Christ to submit and worship him. And Christ says, no, you don't worship God's creation. You only worship God. 
The demons know who Christ is because Christ is their creator. And so when Christ lived out his life and he approached the demons in Mark 1, 24, and you can see this throughout all the Gospels, the demons would say, what business do you we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, you have come to destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. With one single word, the creator can call the creature to submission. If God raises up the kings, we know that God has allowed Satan in the season that he has existed. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much patience? He has waited. And he waits Pharaoh is one king over one nation. Yet there is a God, little g, prince of the air, Ephesians, who rules, who blinds the world. Pharaoh was just one example. The psalmist anticipates this deception placed upon the world. Psalms 2, 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Satan is continuing to deceive the nations from receiving the grace and mercy of God, and God patiently waits. And as he waits, his wrath is being stored out to pour upon those who will not repent. But there will be a day in which he pours off, pours out his wrath, and there will not be one creature that says that was not fair. For in the days of Pharaoh, no one ushered that word. And so will be the day in God's patience. As Psalms 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why did he do this? Satan thinks that he will be able to take God down himself with the world. That God patiently waits, knowing that the riches of his glory will be poured out upon his vessels of mercy in which he determines beforehand to reveal his glory. Vessels of mercy. If you have responded to Christ, you are strengthened in the hope that he will sovereignly crush anyone and everyone who opposes him. And in that moment, you will witness the mercy of God being displayed before you. But this is not just given, this grace of mercy, just to the Jews, but even also to the Gentiles, verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, there's that word again, whom he has called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Revelation 19. I'd go home and read it. There's this great scene where Christ comes on his horse in the clouds of glory. The armies are with him. And on the earth, there is Satan. And he has gathered the nations. It's two worldviews, two kingdoms at odd at each other. It's Psalms 2. Let's take him down. Revelation 19, 
the God of the heavens, the Lord Jesus Christ, merely speaks. And they fall. And in that moment, we will all realize the mercy of God extended to us. That should have been our due. Why does Paul give this to us? To strengthen us. To edify us. And I imagine in these contexts, who can resist the will of God? Verse 19. If it's him who calls to give mercy and to him who gives and calls to harden. Some suggest, that, well, this causes a Christian just to throw up their hands and do nothing. Well, if that's your doctrine of predestination, you don't know Paul and your theology of Paul doesn't line up with his. Paul, in light of this revelation, says in Romans 10, and this is not on the screen, I just want you to hear it. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. If God is indeed sovereign and He is the one who extends mercy where He desires, then it is not, should not it be our desire to pray to the Lord that He be merciful and call people to Himself. For we know the Scriptures, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Is it not our responsibility in that we have received a mercy to use that mercy out of, a, out of, out of worship? God, don't stop saving just me. Be merciful and continue to change the hearts of the hardened to love you and inherit that salvation. I wonder if there's a reason why you're here today. You thought that you're going to get right with God just simply because of your works. Or just simply because you've done everything right that God's just going to balance the scales for you and say, well, you're close, you're in. That attitude is prideful. God will not allow it. One sin causes the wrath of God to be poured out upon you, as Romans has taught us and Jesus himself has said. The heart that which gets into a right relationship with God is a humble heart, which allows you to recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. And that grace has been bestowed on for me through his atonement in the cross. Would you not receive it? And recognize that not by your works, not by your merit, not by any advantage you might bring to God that you might find favor, but rather by the grace of God bestowed to you in Christ Jesus. And maybe, maybe as a result of understanding that mercy, you might be overwhelmed to proclaim how God has been gracious to you, to those whom you live with and work with. He has mercy on whom he desires. Let us pray that God has not stopped reaching people for him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who would reject such a word. There's an attitude here that we ought to have. Paul recognizes that there are many people of his own people who will not repent. And he's forced to trust in your sovereign work. Lord, 